I really do have a sense here today that this passage is not only in God's word, so it must be important, but I do think it's vital that we give heed to what's written here. I have such a conviction about this that as I heard a brother pastor say one time, if God were to open up the heavens today and speak to us directly in this room, he would have nothing more to say to us than what he's already said. That is how urgent the word of God is. It's alive. It is sent to us with power so that we would expound it, so that we would hear it and come alive, and that we would obey it by his power. So I direct your attention now to 2 Peter chapter 2, and I will read just verses 1 to 3 as we begin our understanding and our study of false prophets in the church, false teachers in the church. Follow along as I begin reading in verse one. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality. And because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. This is God's holy, inspired, and infallible word. Join me as I pray that God would take this word and press the meaning of it on our hearts so that we would respond to him in obedience and faith. Thank you, sovereign Lord, for the writing of your word that was written so long ago by the apostle Peter. Thank you that in this age we have it. It is written in our language and we must give heed to it. The urgency is upon us to read this word, to hear it, and to obey Help us to see clearly the Lord Jesus Christ, even in this hard text of scripture, to see him for the God of justice and grace that we have read in scripture he is and know him to be. May you be pleased to deliver people today and in truth, each of our hearts from our tendency to believe false words. And may we be people of the way of truth And truly, may we give testimony knowing who you are and what you have done for us in Christ for our salvation and eternal good and for your glory, amen. So as I read this passage over and over again, I have to tell you that my tendency in reading this was to get dragged into the ugly world of false teachers. As a pastor, my my great desire is as a fellow pastor among others, helping to lead the congregation that I warn you of appropriateness in response to false teachers, who they are, where they are, how to spot them, and how to respond to them. But it's very easy to get pulled into a world trying to figure out where every one of them is. 
And the honest truth is, this passage of scripture does not give us a warning about every false teacher who has ever existed, as much as it warns us about false teachers who are among us even here, even in this room. And so my focus this morning will be on exposing where necessary the types of false words and the heretical teachings that might have even crept into this church so that I can point you towards the Christ who loves his church and the one who is coming back for his bride, the church, and will eradicate those who have messed with his bride. This is him, this is what he does. It's what he will do. And finally, what we need to do in response to what we learned today and to be aware of the threat that is to the church. Our topic is threat assessment today. You know, threat assessment is something that our nation's schools have been doing in the long train of massacres and murders that have happened in our public schools. The, the Columbine High School massacre, one of those examples of two young men, seemingly ordinary, maybe troubled. One, in, one example, a, a rule keeper, yet these boys went in and murdered fellow students and teachers before taking their own lives. And so in the wake of that, there have been attempts with a threat assessment to try to find out three things. The first one is to identify those potential threats. Where are they? Where are those threats? Secondly, to determine how serious the threat is. All right, let's, let's look at what we have in front of us. What do we need to do in response to what we have uncovered a, a threat to be? And finally, in a third point, the, the, the goal is to develop plans to both protect people and if possible, to respond to those doing the threatening in a way that might help them. And I do believe a passage of scripture like this that has been read in our hearing this morning is so that we will have a sense of threat assessment and response that will lead to life and more discipleship under the true Christ so that we will walk with him in his green pastures not in the prisons of the false teachers into which they would allure us. And so I want you to look at the scripture this morning in three of our own points. We will assess the threat of false teachers in our midst. We will see the response of God. He has a threat of his own to them and it is no idle threat. And finally, what should be our response to that threat as we walk out our journey with Jesus Christ here in the now? First of all, this morning, we need to assess the threat of false teachers. And there are four indicators that I see as I have grouped them. You could group this in seven or eight if you want to, but I'm categorizing four things to watch out for, four assessments of false teachers and how Peter says they present themselves when they come among us. Here's the first assessment. First of all, Peter says, be aware false teachers are among God's people. They are among the church. The operative word here is among. And if you think about that, people sitting around you, possibly in your ABF, maybe in your growth group, maybe from outside the church, someone comes in and from all appearances sake, they look like they are well-meaning, professional, good at teaching, 
passionate about what they believe in, but false teachers could be anywhere. In a sense, this could almost make us paranoid. But here is how serious it is. From past experience that I've had and from learning about this word among the church, false teachers among the church, I have found that false teachers at times are virtually indistinguishable from true professors of faith and that they pass membership interviews. This is true and and I've been through this before, before I came here, helping people to walk through membership in our local church and hearing them say all the right things only to find out afterwards that they were not Christ by the words that they said and the life that they lived. Those same people are often charismatic, meaning they're outgoing. They draw people to themselves and they have a message to speak and a platform on which they desire to share that message. And at times when they leave even a membership interview, a pastor may look at them and think, that person probably has a future in this church by the way that they carry themselves and the image that they portray, I bet we're gonna see them involved at some point down the road in some kind of capacity, teaching or leading. But don't be too discouraged because people over the history of God's people have always been duped in this way. And that's why Peter says what he says, but false prophets also arose among the people. That's been the people of God throughout the ages. False prophets would come into the people of God. They too would be fooled. And many people in Israel followed after these false prophets time and time and time and time again. And so Peter is saying, I've just told you about the true prophets that spoke of Christ. And as we've learned about here, the authoritative prophecies came to the people of God that one would come who was the true Christ. Peter said, I saw him on top of a mountain one time. When the glory of God was revealed in him, his clothing shone whiter than any laundry on earth can get clothing white. And Moses and Elijah showed up and they were communing with him, pointing to him. And when I didn't get that, a voice came from heaven to say, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And Peter tells us that that experience verified what the prophets had said long ago. But he said, even better than that, the church has a word of prophecy more sure. And that is the very word of God that we have here today that points us to the true Christ. And it was this way said last week in the preaching of Pastor Sam. When you read God's word and you submit under its authority, it's like a lamp that shines the way in a very dark place. It shows you the next step to take. The commands of God give you your marching orders as you trust in his grace to get you to the end. When Jesus comes back and it says, when the day dawns, that's the return of Christ. It says the morning star will arise in your heart. And here's how the word of God works. You will find that as you read it, trusting in God's power by his spirit to reveal it to you as the truth that it is. It won't just be a lamp that's guiding you on the outside. It will be a light that springs up inside of you and illumines everything that God wants you to know and to have for your life and godliness. This is 2 Peter 1. And so Peter says, but there are some who do not preach that, don't even believe it, and they lead other people away from it. This has always been the case. 
It's the case now. Jesus told us that this is true. Matthew 7, 15 to 20. Jesus said that we would see in the church some people who claim to be sheep but have very sharp teeth. They're wolves. And he said two times, you will know them by their fruit. So where they are indistinguishable at the beginning, eventually they're revealed. They're outed. And Jesus, the master, made sure of this. And out of his love for his flock, he still sends out the warning, the threat is real. Threat assessment, they're among us. Second area of threat, they preach a false message. When we see these false teachers, we might fall into two extremes. Either, like Satan, we think nothing about him, or we think that he's everywhere, under every rock. What we're to do with false teachers is to put them in their proper place. Assess them by the message that they preach. In many cases, they are going to preach the message that we are familiar with, or at least a part of the gospel message that we believe is true and find in the Bible. That's how dangerous they are. But here's what Peter says we're to be aware of. In the first place, they will secretly bring in destructive heresies. And in verse three, they will exploit you with false words. Heresy originally just meant an opinion. If you were a heretic at the origin of this word, you were a person with an opinion. But as certain opinions in the first century after Christ started to come together, they formed schools of thought. And you had two. One was a school of thought that was heterodox and another one that was orthodox. Orthodoxy is good. That just means it's in the line of truth. Heterodoxy means it's outside of the line of truth, meaning it is not under the authority of the Bible. So we are thankful that there were faithful men who fought heresies over time. This is how they've come. They've always been attacks on God, his nature and person, on Jesus Christ, on the gospel message, and on the word of God. If you have ever met anyone who is well-meaning in their Christian walk, but maybe doesn't understand really what the Bible says about who God is. They may believe something like, you know, well, God is, I know we just have one God, and I know that he, we have a Father, Son, and Spirit, but that must mean that sometimes he's a Father, like in the Old Testament, sometimes in the Gospels, he's Jesus, and at other times in the, the New Testament letters, he's the Spirit. It just depends on which part of the Bible, which mode he takes. That's a heresy called modalism. And if you believe that and have been taught that, I'm not meaning to, to bash you. I want you to know that the Bible declares our God is one in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. I, d I don't claim that I can make that make sense logically in your mind. But not everything in our minds has to be all neat and tidy because our God is our God. And likewise, Christ has been attacked by false teaching. Some false teachers claim that Christ was God, but only appeared to be a man. I don't know many that actually say that anymore, but the idea was he gave off the image that he was a man, but he had to be God in order to do the work. But the reality is we needed someone to be 100% God and 100% man. 
We needed a savior who identified, not only identified, but became human like we are to deliver us from our sin by taking our penalty for us. And this is what happened. This is the savior that we have. Once I conducted a membership interview before I ever came here in a different church, I conducted a membership interview of a man who came to us. I encouraged him to join. He was a teacher elsewhere. And I I felt like he needed the accountability that the church had. I I desired that for everybody and the love and support that the church community can bring. I, I encouraged him to join the church. He told me his testimony. He came into the church telling me all the time that he wanted to teach. He really wanted to teach. And he kept asking me, if I join, can I teach? That set off an alarm bell. And I still felt, I, I'm not, I don't wanna be pushing my agenda on this brother, but I also wanna be patient so I get to know him a little bit more. Over the course of time, he came to tell me that he did not believe that we could with confidence say that Jesus was God. And he was a, a man who studied the gospels intently And he had a barrage of verses to throw at me to convince me that Jesus was not and could not possibly be God. That confused me, folks. And at the end of the day, one of the marks of a false teacher and the heresy that they bring, they do not like clarity. They prefer ambiguity. They don't like you to be clear. And what that person said was, well, why can't we just in the church have our different opinions. You believe what you wanna believe about Jesus, I'll believe what I wanna believe about Jesus, but don't push your views on me. I told him, I don't think that you can in integrity claim to be a believer. These false teachers come among us and there is not always a tidy end to what happens as we get to know them. The other word that's used, I see quickly, is false associated with their message. Uh, The Bible uses the word false in verse three. It actually is not the same word as false in verse one when it says false teachers, false prophets. This word in the Greek is actually plastos. And it's where we get our word plastic. And it's interesting because the way that false teachers operate, they take the genuine article, the word of God, and they take things that really suit their fancies about how they want God's word to talk and operate and speak to us, and they fashion something that looks very much like God's word, but it's plastic. We forget living in this world today that plastic is a replacement for genuine articles like wood and steel. And it's just among us now. Same way false words can get among us. And in a moment, I'll share with you a few of those. But the threat is this. They bring a false message that destroys God's people. More pernicious and evil than this is they reject the lordship of Jesus Christ. If you look in the text again, what we read there is that these false teachers bring in their destructive heresies. And then Peter says something that has boggled Bible students for millennia, even denying the master who bought them. Now, if you're sitting in your growth group at some time and Mrs. Smith highlights this passage of scripture and says, well, if this is true, did these men lose their salvation? Were these guys that lost their opportunity to know Christ and gave up what they had gained? One of the things that you have to realize 
the way scripture talks, it treats true professors and false professors before we know they're false the same and groups them together in what we call the church. I'd encourage you sometime to go back and read the epistles, especially the epistles, and see how Paul talks about the people who are in the church. There's always gonna be believers there, and there's always gonna be people that we're, we're thinking might be believers and might not, but we don't know that. We're not God. In the end, there's gonna be sheep and goats, and Jesus is gonna sort them out. But in the meantime, we've got this third category, shoats. Geep. <laughs> and they look a lot like sheep. We don't really, we can't really distinguish them. And the point here is Peter is saying, not theologically these men have lost their salvation, but analogically, in time. We go back to when they told us they submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ. To be a believer, Peter told us in 2 Peter chapter one, is to be overwhelmed by the grace of God for you in Christ that he would save you by sending his son to die on the cross for your sins. And the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ for his people is that he would create and gather to himself a people who were zealous for good works. These were people by his grace who would be his agents of the new creation, his new kingdom. But false teachers are those who are stuck maybe on the grace that's offered, but not the truth. On the easy believism that our culture calls it today, but not submitting to Jesus Christ, the Lord and Savior. This is true in the text, as Peter says at the end of the text, God will judge those especially who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. Ultimately, if they proclaim to be Christian but lead people into the paths of sensuality, of greed, of getting everything you can to milk it out of this life now, they are leading you to hell. Their hope is not focused on the day dawning. In chapter three of 2 Peter, Peter is gonna tell us that the patience of the Lord is leading up to something, the return of Jesus Christ in power and glory. And every true believer looks forward to that day with burning expectation that our king will return. But false teachers live for now. And they tell you that you can have your best life now. You can't. The threat assessment is this, that the false teachers with their profession of following Jesus Christ but their denial of his lordship leads many people to destruction and causes them to follow them. The text says, and this is the tragedy, many will follow them in their sensuality. And ultimately, another threat assessment is how they exploit you to gain something from you. False teachers have a sense of pride. They are not submissive inwardly to anyone. They are not accountable to anyone. And that's why it says about them, verse 10, God will judge them because they despise authority. Friends, if you submit your life under the authority of God's word, that is a true submission. Submission is putting yourself under an authority so that you can benefit from that authority's leadership and love towards you and so that you can, in response to that authority, follow, obey, 
and show by that life of obedience that your heart is that authority. That's how good authority works. We despise authority because in one part, we've seen many negative examples of it. We also despise authority because inherently, we don't want anybody to tell us what to do. But when you come to the Lord Jesus Christ, he is Lord. And of anybody, he has the right to tell you what to do. And the false teachers, they don't have that sense inside. And you can only live outwardly the Christian life so long before the inside comes out. As Jesus said, you'll be identified by your fruits. You can't staple apples onto a dead apple tree and tell me that it's fruit bearing. But that's what false teachers try to do. And in their pride, they attract people by their shows of power and authority. They also attract people by their sensuality. This in sense means if we have confidence that this life is the best life now, their lives will be all about accumulating whatever they can to make their lives the most enjoyable that it can be right now. And finally, their greed is a motivator that drives them to say a message that will exploit, that will rob you of blessings that the Lord says are already yours by his death, burial, and resurrection and by the spirit that he has given you to know him in communion. As a pastor, another time when I was elsewhere pastoring, uh, a beloved member of our church, a, a, a single lady, a businesswoman who is very loved by our, our church, came and said she didn't feel like she could be with us any longer. She had found some new teaching. She told me that the men that she was listening to were very strong and powerful. They had authority. It was one thing that you know, I realized I didn't seem to have a lot of as a young preacher to some, some degree. And I, I felt threatened by that myself, but I listened. She said, they have power and authority. They can cast out demons. They're, they're rich, but they love Jesus and they talk about him. They even say the gospel. If I had more sense at that time, I would have told her. That only proves that Satan comes as an angel of light. But my heart broke as I saw her leave. I firmly believe that she followed false teachers that did her harm. Do I think it will do her eternal harm? Only God knows that. I, I don't think so. I think that she knows Christ genuinely. But she was led astray and followed certain teachers to another church in their sensuality and in their promise of things that they could give. And if she could only have known that she couldn't have told me worse news. Since this was the case, she couldn't have made me more sad if she had told me that she was divorcing Jesus Christ. This is how real the threat is. And if God was not involved with a threat of his own that is not idle, every single one of us would be picked off by these teachers who are among us. It's true. In the final analysis, none of us would be able to stand against our enemy Satan and his emissaries that he plants among us. But God is involved. And more than involved, he's already declared what he has done will be what he will do. And the second point today, 
I want you to see that our God responds with a threat of his own. And as I've said, it is not an idle threat. Verse three, it says in the passive voice something very interesting. If you look there at the end, their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. I read this and read this and read this and I thought, why doesn't it just say God will destroy them because he has condemned them? It's almost like condemnation and destruction are these agents that we're told are not sleeping but will charge out there with powerful force to accomplish something. And that's really how it is. Peter wants us to know that condemnation and destruction as a, as a powerfully strong and unavoidable force as they are, as strong as death, they are just the agents of God. They are his servants dispatched to do his will as he sends them after those who would oppress his bride. This is our Christ. And in this point, as we examine his threat, imagine us in an elaborate hall with paintings on the walls. And these paintings show us scenes from God's justice. This could be God's justice hall. And the images shown are to remind us that he is a God of justice. The first one is this, portrait from long ago, wicked angels who are in the depths and blackness of the fiery hell, wrapped in chains. And we know from the gospels that those demons whom Jesus cast out begged Jesus not to send them back to that place. This is what God did to judge those angels who rebelled against his authority and followed their leader Satan to eternal damnation. No hope for these people, these angels. And in this scene, we see that God responds to the primordial rebellion and those who would then oppress his people with hell, chains of gloomy darkness and judgment. This is our God. A second portrait that we see is the worldwide flood see in the scene the ark and plumes of water bursting up from the ground and the skies above the ark open so that water pours out in waterfalls, waterfall after waterfall of flooding water and the people around the ark grasping as if they could in that last second reach out to some part of the ark and just hold on only to be swept away as this scene portrays for us, God destroyed the ancient world of the ungodly with a flood. In the third place, note in God's hall of justice, the portrait that shows us the destruction of two wicked cities from an age long ago in Genesis 19, Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah was a place that God long watched as that ungodly place increased in ungodliness to the point where God sent angels as men to Abraham. And they talked with Abraham about their plans and Abraham prayed, will you spare those who are righteous there? If there's 100, if there's 50, if there's 40, if there's 20, if there's 10, will you spare them? And as those angels went down, they barely got Lot out before 
the heavens opened with fire and consumed those cities. And now in the portrait, we see two smoking ash heaps that used to be vibrant cities where people were farming, raising their kids, giving their daughters away in marriage, going shopping, buying the latest things that the culture dictated they had to have, gone. And God says in the text, he does this to make them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. The hall of justice of God portrays our just God. I praise him for his wrath. I praise him for his justice. And here's what we have to realize. Even those, here's another thing to watch out for. Those who say in the Old Testament, God was a God of wrath. But now in the New Testament, we've got Jesus and he's a God of all grace. The God of the Old Testament is gone. The God of the New Testament is who we follow. Don't listen to that, that's another heresy. (laughs) The God of the Old Testament, yes, he showed his righteous wrath by his character, but he was a God of grace. And in the New Testament, he showed immense grace, but you must know that he is still a God of wrath. And this is what Peter is drawing our attention to. We are told to grow in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, to grow in grace and truth. This is true about our God. If you want a promise to lead you in your righteous standing before God so that you will follow him in the path that he has laid out, know your God. Go into his hall of justice in 2 Peter 2, look at the portraits and remember how God said he will respond to the threat of the ungodly and those who will lead his people astray. But I want you to know, as I said, we don't wanna fall into the heresy of saying that was a God of wrath and there was no grace back then. Did you see the other pictures? In God's justice, we see that those who he has declared to be righteous and whom he has set aside to be his people, he gathers them up and delivers them. Noah, a preacher of righteousness, who in his culture knew God and loved God and believed in God, wanted others to be saved. No one would listen. Yet he and his family members were put on the ark. Praise God for that. That's the reason that we're all here. God is a God of all grace. And the mercy that he showed to Noah brought life. God was gracious to Lot. I I said his story appears in Genesis 19. Read it sometime and compare it to 2 Peter chapter 2. I challenge you to think like Peter does, that Lot, as he says three times, was righteous, righteous, righteous. Lot dragged his heels the whole way out of Sodom. And the linchpin of Genesis 19 is verse 16, where it says, God showed Lot mercy. And the reality is, as I said earlier, if God did not intervene into the lives of his beloved people whom he sets his love on and delivers, if he did not continue that work and keep us until the end, none of us would be delivered. But praise our God, he is a God of grace and truth. And finally, friends, to close this out, I want to show you what our response to this threat must be. Knowing what we have learned about false teachers and about our God, who has no idle threat or promise of his own, we face our responsibility to continue to recognize that threat 
like, like me in my inexperience, but even in my best intentions. I didn't know a false teacher was among our group until it was revealed later on. Continue to, to understand that the threat is real. Assess it and grow in your awareness of how to understand when that threat is in front of you. Secondly, how can you do that? Well, recognize the true gospel. As I said earlier, the gospel is Christ came to redeem us from sin so that we might be purified for himself, a people who live for him and desire good works to show forth the glory of our creator. And finally, friends, recognize where you are prone to hear and to follow false words, plastic words. I told you about that, that sister in our church. I wanna share with you a tendency in my own heart that through this study, the Lord has confirmed to me. This pastor is not immune to the attraction of false words. For many, many months, I was tracking with a very popular preacher that rose up in the circles that I respect. And in his church, when he came in, he doubled the size of his church. Most people are impressed with that, even me. And in that, that circle of influence, those who knew him, respected him, and put him forward as an example, he would often say things like this, that I identified, God's grace meets us in messy places because messy places are all that there are. And I thought, I identify with that. I still wrestle with an old sin nature. I'm still pretty messy and the Lord meets me there in his grace. Amen, I can say amen to that. But as I tracked what he kept saying, things never got any more tidy. They continued to be messy. And the whole books have been written on messy church. You can look it up, it's, it's out there. And I'm not saying that's bad, but the reality is Jesus Christ died to redeem his people from their sins so that he would purify for himself a people who are particularly zealous for good works. And I came to realize the more I focused on my messiness, I still experienced the, the grace of God by his grace, but maybe I wasn't much better than Lot, vexing my righteous soul day after day, focused on the messiness and forgetting to look at Christ who called me to walk after him for his glory. And I came to realize I don't, I don't just need to recognize that God is gracious to a messy guy like me, to a sinful guy like me, but God is at work in me and other people to produce true holiness in us. Friends, I don't need to just see the mess. I need to see holiness. I want to be holy. I want Christ to transform me for his glory. It's not a Pharisee to desire that. It's not to be a Pharisee to say that or to feel that. Christ awakens that desire in us so that yes, we affirm the mess, but we pursue him in holiness and say, I am following after you and I, my heart's desire is to obey you. What is the tragedy is as I follow this man, I'm not saying he's a false teacher, I don't know that, but he has, he has lost his ministry, divorced his wife, now with another. And I'm confused, his local church was confused, and those circles that I respected we're all confused. This is what happens when a ministry and a message gets imbalanced and we forget what Christ died to do in our lives. 
Finally, friends, I want you to understand the stakes here. Following Christ is an amazing experience in the vast open fields of green grace. We are sheep. He is our shepherd. And we are following him with the expectation that he is leading us to further life. And the expanse of those fields that Christ owns are never ending as we get deeper in our relationship with him. But the danger happens when some of the false sheep come in and they set up their own gates and they're made out of gold and they're really bright and shiny. And they promise you things like if you come that direction, you'll have your best life now. If you come this direction, you can be as messy as you want. If you come this direction, you don't have to give up anything. God just gives you everything that you want. And what you find is, as you're following Jesus, you see those gates. And if you just look at the outside, you're gonna find that you walk in and all of a sudden, there's no room to go. You're in prison. Now, I'm not saying that a true believer will remain in the prison the rest of his life, but the objective of the enemy is to pick us off one by one so that we will leave the true gospel of Christ and follow hard after something that is easier for us to grasp because it already attracts the nature of our hearts and the bent that we have and the way that we want to go. Beloved friends, as one of your pastors, I implore you, do not lose sight of Christ. Read his word. Follow him. Pray for understanding from the spirit to reveal the truth of the true Christ. Christ. 